going through all of this for nothing. Uh, these are some of the thoughts that John the Baptist is starting to consider as we get to about the midpoint of the book of Matthew. Uh, those may, you may not know if you're not super familiar with the Gospels, John the Baptist, who we talked about several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, out in the wilderness, preaching like a crazy man, animal hair, eating locusts, all that kind of stuff. Um, he eventually is arrested for his preaching. Uh, he had a particular local politician who was uh, sleeping with somebody he wasn't supposed to be, and John the Baptist dared to say, hey, that's not righteous, that's not what a good Jewish person should do, and that politician decided that he would rather John the Baptist be in jail and not on the street corners telling all the people he was ruling about what a terrible guy he was, right? And so John the Baptist gets moved into prison, and he is sitting in prison thinking about all that's happened, and he's considering Jesus and all these things that he is hearing about Jesus and the ministry that Jesus is beginning to do. And it's fascinating that for a moment, he starts to wonder, are, are we really doing this the right way? Is this really, am I, am I going about this the way I'm supposed to? And these doubts are recorded for us uh, in the book of Matthew. Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Uh, the doubt may not seem very significant and articulated there, but it's a huge distinction from John earlier in the Gospels, right? Earlier in the Gospels, John sees Jesus and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God, right? Or he says, I am not worthy to even touch his sandals, uh, when Jesus wants to be baptized, he goes, it is you who should be baptizing me, not me who should be baptizing you, right? And he goes from those big proclamations to, um, are you, are you really the guy or is there another one coming down the road? Like, uh, I'm in jail. I'm starting to think about my own mortality. Uh, we know that very soon John the Baptist will be beheaded. He's the one who famously has his head right put on a silver platter where we get that expression, your head on a platter. Um, and so he's considering his life, he's considering his work, and he's kind of asking this question, have I backed the right horse? Or am I sitting in prison, about to die, and the sum total of my ministry is a beheading and supporting a guy who's just one other Joe in a long line of Joes that have tried to preach and proclaim themselves to be the Messiah? And that doubt is fascinating for us. Um, I think for many of us, it's affirming. Like, oh, when I'm like, is Jesus really who he said he was? I am just doing exactly what John the Baptist did, right? That even someone uh, of such high esteem as John the Baptist suffered from the kinds of doubts that we suffer from from time to time. And so he wants to know, okay, is this the guy or is this not the guy? And so this is the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus replied to these men who came to him from John, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Uh, it's really interesting to me how Jesus deals with this. Uh, Jesus basically, when they come to him, he goes, 
well, let's, let's take a walk. Let's look around. Spend a day with me. Find out what's happening. And then I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm just going to let you go to John the Baptist and tell him what it's like hanging out with me. And he can decide for himself if I really am what I claim to be. I find it fascinating um, the arguments that Jesus does not make. All right, sometimes you have to be careful about arguments from silence. But here are a list of things that Jesus does not say to John the Baptist in his moment of doubt. Hey, you used to believe. You said I was the Messiah. What's going on, man? Are you turning your back now? Right, just kind of shaming him into his former thoughts. Your mom believed in me. I mean, she was super happy when I was going to be born. You're, aren't you going to do what you're, uh, are you going to believe the same thing that your parents believed? Hey, man, you were there. You heard the voice from heaven. You saw the dove come down. You've had this religious experience. Clearly, I am the Messiah. Why are you even asking? Or look at the, the Hebrew Bible. Look at all these Old Testament uh, prophecies. They wouldn't have called them Old Testament prophecies. Look at all these biblical prophecies that I fulfill, right? Like, under, like, look at these. Obviously, I have to be the Messiah based on these things that I've done. Uh, also, this would have been a very poor tactic. Look at how wealthy and popular I am. Clearly, I have named it and claimed it, and God has taken care of me. I must be the real deal. Or, hey, John, logically, I have to be the Messiah. Let me give you an eight-point philosophical argument about the nature of deity and the nature of the planet, and then you will be proven uh, without any doubt that I am definitely the Messiah. None of these are approaches that Jesus takes. Yet when we're faced with doubt in our world, uh, we make a lot of those, those cases, right? Uh, I'm not trying to be totally negative towards apologetics or the study of how to defend your faith. But we spend a whole lot of time writing lots and lots of books and going to seminars and doing videos and all this stuff to show how to defend your faith. And a lot of the strategies that we have for dealing with doubt do not look anything like the strategy that Jesus has for dealing with doubt. Because Jesus' strategy is, come along. Take a look. See what it looks like. Join me for a day. Kind of come on this adventure with me. Let's journey together. And you can look around and you can see what's going on here. And then you decide for yourself. I'm not going to make you tons of arguments. And, and listen, some of those things are connected, right? The whole thing about sick being healed and the good news to the poor, that is a fulfillment of Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures, right? Those are connected. But ultimately, Jesus does not pull open a book. He does not start a lecture. He does not grab a whiteboard and start squeaky, squeaky marker on it, right? He doesn't do a cool little thing with animation where he draws and he keeps talking and then draws and draws, right? The, the, the draw animation that's so big in our world today describe everything. This is not Jesus' tact. Jesus says, come along with me. Let's walk together and you can see what my life is like. And then you can tell me if the power of the Messiah is here or not. I think this is really big for us. Because I think it challenges us to consider what our friends who doubt really need or what we need when we doubt. 
We are so concerned that we need to have the right arguments and the right examples, and we think that we need a pile of books and that we need a degree. My favorite one, and I understand the impulse, is that people think that I am going to handle it better than they would, right? They're like, Caleb, I've got a friend. What do I say to them? And I'm like, well, okay, I do have some education here. But ultimately, I don't think our arguments and our explanations are what's needed. I think what people really need to see is what Jesus living in us looks like. We need to say, you know what? I know you have doubts. I have doubts too. Walk with me for a little while and see if this thing is valuable. See if it changes lives. See if it'll change your life. And that's ultimately the invitation that we make because that's the invitation that Jesus makes to these, to these people from John. Um, what it does is it really does an interesting shift in the weight for us, okay? For those of us who are believers and are, are trying to help our friends who doubt, um, what it does is it takes a lot of weight off because you no longer have to be a scholar, okay? You don't have to read Greek. You don't have to know uh, what Occam's razor means or any of those kinds of things, right? You can just be a normal dudette or dude, right? But it does a different kind of pressure in that you now live with the paparazzi, right? You live surrounded by people who you've said, watch my life and see if it has value. And now the value of the gospel is proven by the quality of your life. Now, as Christians, this shouldn't worry us too much because we believe that God gives life and gives it abundantly. And we know that when we walk in step with the Spirit and when we ask Christ for guidance in our life, we experience good, rich life. And I think uh, as much as we want to pick on it, those of us who spend time with the church and in the church, I think we've recognized a richness and a depth and a beauty to what happens in church, right? When it clicks the right way, we have seen the beauty of spiritual community. So it shouldn't be that scary, but it does require us to realize that we are living watched lives and we are inviting people to watch our lives. In some ways, it is easier to say, hey, listen, Jesus is the Messiah because philosophical treaties uh, than to say, hey, if you want to know if he's the Messiah or not, look and see what he is doing as king of my life. Because that requires for him to actually be the king of your life. But Jesus has come along. Let's let your doubts uh, engage with the reality of what this lifestyle looks like. Conversation doesn't end, though. He still has some ways to deal with uh, doubts and expectations. Verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, 
He is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So Jesus kind of goes on this whole little bit about John. And he goes, so why did you guys go out there to listen to him? Right? He's kind of getting at the doubt in their own hearts. Undoubtedly, some of them are like, oh, John the Baptist, I was not following him. They were, but he's in jail now, so he's not so popular, right? And Jesus goes, well, listen, let's slow down here. Before you start bailing on him, let's talk about why you went to the wilderness. What did you go out there to see? Did you go out there to see a meek and mild man who was swayed in the breeze like a reed in the wind? No. We talked about this again in our John the Baptist sermon. He was anything but mild. He was the root is at the axe. The, the root is at the axe. The axe is at the root of the tree. You will be cut up and burned in fire, right? This was John. He was not meek and mild. He said, as you go out to see a king, this is obviously farcical and ridiculous because this was a guy who's wearing animal skins and eating bugs, right? He says, you didn't go out there because he was wealthy. You went out there because he was a prophet. And what's happening to him is what always happens to the prophets. When people speak the truth, particularly the truth to people in power, they often end up in jail. So don't let your opinion of this guy be changed. His ministry isn't different just because he's in prison. He is exactly what you thought he was. He is doing exactly what you gobbled up when it was popular and there were crowds. And now that he's in prison, you should still listen to him. And then Jesus digs a little bit further into the hypocrisy of the people and the way that they let doubt enter their minds. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For, Jesus, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proven right by her deeds. A lot of this is about style. Um, when I was a kid, I never understood this verse because it had lots of words that we don't use anymore, right? Uh, the idea is that um, he, he uses this sort of metaphor of, of kids that are taunting entertainers or taunting people in their community. They said, we played the pipe for you. We, we played a, a happy little dance tune, and you didn't dance. But then we played a dirge, a mournful, sad, lamenting song, and you didn't mourn. In other words, we don't like you if you get too excited, and we don't like you if you're too depressed. We want you to do what we want you to do. And Jesus says, you know, we all have a little bit of different style. John the Baptist's style was that he tended to fast, and he was an ascetic, and he lived with little uh, physical pleasure around him. And you guys were like, oh, he's a demon. But then you look at me, and you see how much time I spend going to parties and hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and enjoying food and drink, and I am a drunk and I'm a glutton because I'm not doing what John did, even though you criticize John for what John did. And he says, you guys aren't happy no matter what you get. No matter what style is in front of you, no matter what fonts on the page, you nitpick it about why it's no good. And then he ends with this amazing word, wisdom is proven by her deeds. I think Jesus would have some criticism for the modern church. And I think it would come along the lines of expectations and styles. Uh, we live in a church shopping world, right? You have 
a thousand options, even in a city like Providence, of where you could be this morning. And you've got your lists of what you like and what you don't like. I don't like that church. It is too stuffy and traditional. I don't like that church. It's just like a big rock concert. I can't even hear myself. I don't like that preacher. He is too loud. That preacher is so soft-spoken, I can't understand him. I just really, that building was far too plain. Who are they kidding with all those decorations that they put up, right? Like, this is kind of a subtle thing that we have done where we judge Christianity based on these things. The worship is to this or to that. The sermon's to this or to that. It's like Goldilocks and the 8,000 ecclesiastical bears, right? This one's a little too much this. This is a little too much that. This is a little too much this. And I think Jesus would look at the modern church and he would say, I am not a bear here dancing for you. I am not waiting for you to play the right song so that I can do the right jig so you're excited. Wisdom is proved by her deeds. When you walk into a church building, stop talking so much about what the guitar sounds like or whether there's a guitar or what the preacher sounds like and ask yourself, is ministry and God's work happening at that church? Because he does it at all kinds of churches and there's all kinds of churches where nothing's going on. And Jesus says, wisdom is proved by her deeds. And so you come with your doubts about a place, and he goes, those things should be proven by the way they acted. Me and John the Baptist were very different styles. We preach a different way. If you loved John, you might not love me. And if you love me, you probably weren't a fan of John. But guess what? We were on the same team, and we were doing the same work. And that's all that really, really matters when all is said and done. I think the challenge for us is that when we come to spirituality— um, we sometimes come to spiritual things, be they the way God is or the way church is, and we come to it the way that a 16-year-old girl is trying to pick a spouse, okay? Have you ever sat down with a teenage girl? What are you looking for in a man? I, I did not make this up, okay? This was online. I just put in, like, boyfriend checklist, and this literally appeared on my Google search. Uh, here's a young woman that wants someone that smells like a campfire, knows the right way to use your and your, uh, framed receipt of a first date, is better than a Tiffany bracelet, she wants uh, a meat eater that doesn't have roommates, a British accent, knows who Sylvia Pagioli is, I don't even know who that is, has a bike messenger bag, but is not a bike messenger, doesn't wear Converse or penny loafers, can live without his iPhone, has a computer at home, computer at home happens to be a Mac, Creative type with health insurance, you know, like a graphic engineer. Does yoga, can hammer stuff, rides his bike with for enjoyment but not necessity. Right, there's all these, like, this amazing list, right? This is what I would like. I had to cut it off. Later on it said his name is Aiden. That was one of the things on this list, right? And maybe we've all known someone like that who is looking to date, and this is their list. And you know what? They are chronically disappointed that this person doesn't exist, Right? I tease my wife. This is the way my wife is about shoes. I know what I want, and I'll see them when they come. After 14 stores, none of the stores had exactly what I wanted. Well, yes, because you're not a designer, and you didn't send out specs for your shoes that they purposely created. Okay, you go out, whether you're dating or shoe shopping, you go out and you look at what's available, and you have to pick one of the options that's available. Because this is not a build-your-own 
this is not the Build-A-Bear, right? This is a pick-a-person. And people are not always exactly what you want them to be. What if God's like that? And you've got a checklist in your heads of all in the head. I can't say that sentence right. Of everything that God's supposed to be. And then you find yourself discouraged when he's different. See, this is really, I think, um, significant for us because we come to our spiritual experiences and I have kind of jumped back and forth between God and church. They're not the same thing, obviously. But it's true of how we approach God and I think it's true of how we pick spiritual communities. We have this idea of what the ideal one looks like in our head. And then if we find, we, we find the closest one and then we just start hammering at it to make it fit, right? Like if this experience will just be what I want it to be, and we never ask ourselves if you are qualified to make that list of criteria. You never ask yourself if God looks like what you want him to look like. Has he become a mere human conception? See, this is a really interesting thing, I think, about Christianity, okay? The difference between a personal God and the concept of God. The Greeks loved to do this. They said, well, philosophically speaking, if God were to exist, these are all the things that God would need to be, right? And so Socrates and Plato and all these guys, they would hammer out what God ideally should look like. They were making the list, their boyfriend checklist, right? And the Bible never takes that approach. They say, you know, God's a person with a personality, there are things that he likes, and there's things that he doesn't like. And there's things that make him mad, and there's things that he's really pretty loose on. And it's not that he has to be those. There's no cosmic checklist that makes him be God. He just is who he is. And then the New Testament does this really crazy thing where they say that he came and became a person and put on flesh and that God looks like Jesus. And now it's really a personal God. And we are so busy going, well, if God existed, then he should be like this and this and this and this. And God goes, nope, it's not your rules, it's my rules. You meet me and you choose to take me or leave me. But I am not here to fit into your Procrustean bed of what God's supposed to look like. Instead, spend some time with me and find out how great I am. And by coming into the flesh, Jesus does this amazing thing where he's like, do you want a God who uh, is quick to anger? Too bad. That's not what God's like. You know, if you want a God that is going to stand up for himself and stand up for his own rights, too bad. I went to the cross. It's not who I am. And your preconception of what I should be doesn't matter to me because I am who I am. This is God's definition from the start, right? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I was who I was. I am me, and you can take it or leave it, but I am not going to fit into your mold. And that's a fascinating thing as we process doubt. Because what it says is that we have a real challenge in front of us. If we are going to come to believe in a God who gives us an upside-down kingdom, that means necessarily he's going to say things that shock us and surprise us and annoy us and confront us. And if we're like the kids who think we can play the right tune on our flute to make God dance the way we desire, we're crazy. 
because not only is he king, but he's a king that does unexpected, weird, upside down stuff. And as long as he has to fit into our mold, we are God, not him. If you say, oh, I'm just so frustrated with God because he doesn't do this thing I want him to do, God will say, that is treason. You have the wrong person on your throne. And so in this passage, Jesus fights with the people to say, nope, we're doing, I am who I am. And you are not going to sit here and judge me because I don't live up to your expectations because you're not God, I am. Um, I think this really changes how we approach life and how we go through things. As you go on a spiritual journey, um, don't go into a spiritual journey with a preconceived notion of what it's supposed to look like. Man, I just feel like God's really not there right now because I'm not experiencing this thing that I think should be there. I think God would go, well, that's because I'm doing something different. I don't want to do that, <laughs> right? We so often have our preconceptions and our expectations and our doubts are along the line of this doesn't look like what I thought it would look like. And so we have to stop asking the question, why doesn't this look like I think it should look and ask ourselves, do I believe God is present here regardless of what it looks like? Right? Because a lot of times we end up in the middle of something and we're like, whoa, this is not what I saw. I have friends, a couple of friends recently that um, have married women who had kids, right? A couple guys I went to college with. Uh, I think in one of the cases, I'm not sure if they're divorced or if um, uh, the husband died. These are things that people don't usually share on social media, right? Like, hey, here's my wife who got divorced a year. Like she didn't, you know, they don't put that online, right? But they're, uh, they're guys my age who've married women that have four or five-year-olds. I am sure that when we were in college and we were talking about girls in the dorm, becoming a dad instantaneously was probably not something they were thinking about. I don't know, maybe one or two of them wanted to, but I think most of them didn't. But you know what's really beautiful? None of them said, oh, no, no, my plan is to get married and to be sing uh, married without kids for about four and a half years, and then we're going to start trying, and then we're going to have kids, and then it's going to work this way and this way and this way. They met a beautiful girl, and she had a kid, and they go, maybe God's going to work in this, right? Like, maybe this is just not going to be the story I thought it was, and that's okay. For most of us, our careers are that way. A lot of us didn't go, hey, I'm signing up for this, and then pursued it like a dog. I mean, I did. But many of us, we started one way, and then we're like, oh, look at where I ended up. But you know what? God seems to be working in this. Because we tend to do this, like, cookie-cutter thing, right? You see these neighborhoods where all the houses look the same? That appeals to some people, but it, ugh. Turns my stomach. No, your houses should look different. They should be weird. You know, there should be individuality in the world. There should be weirdness in the world. And I think sometimes God looks at our lives that we have lined up for ourselves, and he sees this, and he goes, don't you want anything more interesting on that block? But if we are constantly requiring him to dance to the tune that we play, then we never get there. And we live a life of doubt and dissatisfaction because the God I expected never showed up even though the God I need has been there all along. And so that's our challenge, I think, and we come into our doubts, is to let God be who he is and not just fit our expectations. All right, Q&A. Do you guys have any questions about this passage and about uh, anything we talked about today? Oh, yeah, so why, I mean, so you have to use the one that's there, right, right. So, no, I'm all for the square peg. I'm saying don't try to fit it in the round hole. 
just go like, oh, my hole is useless, right? Like my conception of how this needs to fit isn't there. So instead of trying to take the peg and fit it to the hole, you go, oh, my hole was a ridiculous expectation. Let's cut a new one and then boom, it'll fit, right? So, hey, that shoe is the best shoe I found today and I'm going to fit my expectations to what a wonderful shoe it is instead of complain about the fact that it's not the shoe I had in my mind. Yeah, when I talk about church, um, the question I wish everybody would ask is, is this a place where God is going to be able to use me, right? Is this a place where Jesus wisdom is proven by her deeds? Is this a church where I will be able to be involved in God's work, right? Because a lot of times what I discover is people say, ooh, is this a place that feels comfortable for me? Or is this a place where... Uh, I feel like I'm getting everything I want. And they end up a place that really fills them really well. And then just it's it's like spiritual gluttony almost, right? Like, oh, I'm really, really fed. Well, have you, has that then led you to minister to anyone else? No, but I'm doing awesome, right? And there is this idea that blessing is always for the purpose of blessing someone else. And so my point there is that um, the question when you walk into a building, even if we're just evaluating a church, is it, well, that's a church that does it different than us? Or is it, we go, oh, is that a church that's just as engaged and loves their community as much as we do, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's a real JFK kind of thing, right? Um, but that's, I mean, I think if we were true and asked people about their hearts, the number of American Christians whose first question is, what is this church doing for me instead of how am I able to bless this church? would be embarrassing for us. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I think this is very romantic. Other people think I'm not. The idea of your spouse being the one for you, I think is really baloney. I think it's, what's really beautiful is, and I mean, Fran's heard me say this, Fran is one of thousands of women I could have married, but I chose to pick her, right? She wasn't like the only one that was there for me. There's lots of other women I could have married. I could have had happy, good lives. I wouldn't have had this life, right? But in the end, I picked her. Uh, this is kind of what God talks about Israel. He says, of all the eight nations of the earth, there was no reason, there's no compelling reason to pick you. But I picked you because I love you. And I chose you. Um, and I think there's some of that in these things in life. That in the end... Um, if someone has to meet all of our criteria on a big, long checklist, um, then we create this sort of platonic ideal that doesn't even exist and we're chronically un, uh, not happy. Whereas if we say, you know what, I, I'm going to pick a real person and it's not going to be perfect, but that's not supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be something we work out together. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when, you know, some people go, dear, you're one of a kind. I look at my wife and I say, dear, you're one of 15,000. But you're my one, one of one fifteen thousand. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, right. Yeah, I really wanted to, so this is really, I've said this a lot of times and it's kind of old and boring, but it's applicable, so I'll say it now. And I kept it out of the sermon, right? It's the old illustration of the guy drowning on the roof, right? The flood's coming. God, please save me. A boat comes by. I can't take your boat. God's going to save me. 
right? The helicopter comes by. I can't take your helicopter. God's going to save me. And then when he dies, he goes to heaven. He says, God, why didn't you save me? And he said, I sent you a swimmer and a boat and a helicopter. What more do you want? Right? And it's sort of this idea that like, yeah, um, again, we're looking for an ideal instead of looking for where God's active, you know? All right. Does that do?